Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. Pour out your 40s and toss your smokes. Today's guest is Jonathan Anastas, bass guitarist for the straight-edge hardcore punk band DYS from Boston, Massachusetts. Together, we break down the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the fan-favorite song, Wolfpack, taken from their 1983 debut album, Brotherhood. This song is a time capsule, a snapshot into the straight-edge hardcore movement that was happening in Boston and elsewhere in the early 80s. Recorded on a shoestring budget, Wolfpack is a song by a band with no studio wizardry or trickery. Vocalist Dave Smalley, who went on to front punk legends Dag Nasty, All, and Down By Law, sounds every bit as young as he was here, but already singing with his distinctive vocal style and delivery. And Jonathan's attitude and outlook is about as humble and refreshing as it gets. He's having the time of his life and is ever so appreciative that 40 years later, he still gets to play these songs with the friends he wrote them with. Very cool. So for all this and a bunch more, stick around. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going? Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And I got to say, you have the dubious honor of being the only person on Krista Makes a Podcast in almost four years to be broadcasting live from an airport, LAX to be precise. I, I'm indeed in LAX headed to uh, New York City for a board meeting, but I, I appreciate you finding the time to have me. Absolutely. And I don't know if you remember, okay, I play guitar and sing for Less Than Jake, but we played with DYS at the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones Throwdown back in 2010. You guys were amazing. It was an honor to share a stage with you guys. And, and you're an amazing band. So always great to talk to to talent. Well, th- thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I want to go back. First of all, congratulations. Uh, it's been 40 years, uh, 41 years now since the debut album uh, of Brotherhood in 1983. It's crazy. If you had asked me when I was 15 years old and made a record, if anybody would be talking about it this many years later, if anybody was willing to buy it, you know, we sold out in pre-release. They were all gone before release date. We're working with Bridge Nine to sort of figure out what's next for the the second batch. Is it going to be a unique color? Or are we going to change the sleeve in some way? So the people who got in early feel like they got something special. But if you had asked me that many years ago, if anybody would care, I'm 100% sure my answer would have been no. <laughs> well, it's it, it's incredible. You know, I was talking about your band. I recently did some uh, guided tours out at the Punk Rock Museum out in Las Vegas. And it just, you know, no matter how much you can go down the, the YouTube rabbit hole or you can Wikipedia bands, unless you were there, 
And I love talking to a lot of the guys that were there. And what was the scene like in Boston in 83? I mean, there was this straight edge thing that was happening. It seems like you guys, DYS, was at the forefront of that. And uh, what was that like? It was so different than it is today on on a couple of levels. And and on one level, I mean scale. Like you guys came along at a time where scale was possible. You know, one of the honors that I that I've been able to do is to go back at it this many years later and taste some of that scale. Now, clearly, you know, we're not in the place of the bills where like the bad religions and, you know, the mad balls are, but to go to Europe this many years later and you think about there's 90,000 people at Hellfest or there's 30,000 people at Grosrock or there's like 20,000 people at Rebellion was again, something that would have been incomprehensible. You know, at the beginning we were playing to rooms, of 100 people, 75 people. And we're talking about teeny rooms, right? So like packed 75-person venues, packed 100-person venues. I think maybe the largest venues we played in sort of, you know, what I'd call DYS version 1.0 was, you know, maybe the original Rock Hotel at, you know, it's now the Jane Hotel in New York. That's like, what, 900 cap, right? Give or take. Did you play the Rat? Played the Rat, played the Rat a lot. But like in Boston, like say the Channel, maybe 950 cap, right? Like it was a big deal to play a place where like there might be a thousand people. So, you know, it was a very unique and special time. And it was a time when you knew a great percentage of your audience. And there was even a time very early where a great percentage of your audience was other bands. You know, you hear all those classic stories about, you know, I remember seeing the documentary on, you know, like the Manchester scene in the 90s. And they talk about, you know, everybody who was in the audience then formed a band. It sort of felt like, like it was that way, like DYS in essence formed out of the SSD control road crew, right? Like we were roadies and fans first, and then we became a band. Or, you know, I remember being at Guns N' Roses at the Ritz in like 88 or 89. And what a large percentage of that audience was a band, right? Like there's Rob Zombie. And it was like (laughs) one of those unique moments, right? Where like we weren't just fans. We spawned something uh, organically together. Right. And but what was the inspiration? Were you feeding off what Minor Threat was doing in D.C.? How did this straight edge thing like how how did it become a thing in Boston? It became a thing in Boston largely because SSD control made it a thing in Boston. And you cannot give them any less credit than that. Right. They sort of saw it first and took it and ran with it. And Alberil was really an incredible brander. And they made it front and center, right? You know, I, I remember listening to the Discord guys, and the Discord guys were like, you know, we never put it on shirts. We never put it on jackets. Like, it was something that happened, but we weren't shouting about it. We may have been singing about it, but we didn't brand it. And so you take this idea of, of Boston where it's being branded, and you take this, what I've always called, like, this Boston flinty work ethic that we're going to do it on 11, right? It was the era of the battling Bruins and like the Red Auerbach era of the Celtics and like everything was a battle. So we were going to make straight edge a battle. We were going to make straight edge a war. And, you know, one of the things that I feel most grateful from is like a 14 or 15 year old kid coming in from the suburbs. I could have gone into two doors, so to speak. I could have gone to venue A where SSD was playing and the message was drugs are bad. Alcohol is bad. This isn't cool. Or I could have gone into venue B, maybe snuck into the rat with a fake ID, and it's drinking is cool and drugs are cool. And I had friends who went in each door, 
And there's a lot more friends I have who are alive who went into door number one than door number two. Uh, and I feel very grateful for that because I could have very easily gone into door number two. When you're 14, 15, 16, the people around you are defining to a large degree what you believe in and what you lean into more than your parents. And I just feel personally so lucky to have fallen into where the peer pressure was was positive as opposed to negative, additive as opposed to destructive. That's interesting. And during this time period, what you know, what was it like when you'd go over to New York and you'd play with an agnostic front or something? Where you, what, you know, because that was the thing. This suburban kid from Florida, when I grew up and started learning about straight edge, it scared me. You know, I because it just looked tough. I heard about you know the fights at the shows and what was that like between cities? So I think a lot of that Boston New York rivalry has been overblown in mythology. And what I mean by that is like <laughs> ultimately. I think about when it very first started. When it very first started, there was no schism, right? The scene was so small. The world was so small. It was hardcore against everybody else. It was hardcore against punk rock. It was hardcore against corporate rock. It was hardcore against your parents. And it was all so small that we were all one. You know, I, the biggest anxiety I had going to New York the first time I went and played CBGBs wasn't like, oh, it's New York. We're going to get beat up. It's like, I'm barely a bass player. I'm not even sure I can call myself a bass player. And Daryl <laughs> Jennifer from the Bad Brains is planted in front of me for 40 minutes. And he's a guy who I look up to as being an incredible talent yesterday and an incredible talent today. Yeah. And I was like, I have to perform for Daryl Jennifer. That's what I was thinking about, right? <laughs> not thinking about getting my ass kicked. And it was sort of, <laughs> and it was sort of later. And we were all everybody would help everybody load in. Like I really want to emphasize, like when it was in its nucleus, how together it was and how unified it was. And then over time, it sort of became Boston leaned straight edge, but obviously wasn't exclusively straight edge. You had bands like Gang Green who were doing alcohol as an anthem. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. and you had New York, which didn't really have as much of a straight edge. It was smaller. Right. I sort of feel like D.C. represented straight edge. Boston represented straight edge. New York represented more no edge. And I think it maybe came more from where we were like D.C. and Boston were more suburban scenes and New York was more of an urban scene. And, you know, when you go out to California, California was very much a divided scene. Right. You had the uniform choices of the world and you had the TSOLs of the world where, you know, pre sobriety. Right. And you had the gangs and all that stuff. But so the straight edge, no edge thing sort of became a schism, but I would also sort of call it like, you know, like athletic rivalries, like, you know, like, like Yankees, Red Sox, right? Like at the and I will also say coming back and doing this, you know, when we played together from like 2009 until COVID, we felt very much together. I felt you know, incredibly comfortable sharing stages with Agnostic Front and Madball and, you know, the Cro-Mags and, you know, we're all, we're all grownups trying to do the best thing for our families and for our bands and, and understanding that we, we share a unique place in sort of this subgenre. And so I, I, I feel like that era is also just very much behind us. Yeah. You know, I've heard your, your sentiments echoed from, uh, you know, the first person that comes to mind is Greg Hetson from Circle Jerks. And he's telling me the same thing you were saying a minute ago about how like 40 years ago, you never would have thought you'd be at Hellfest playing to 30,000 people on, on one of the main stages. You know, it just, it, it, it wasn't part of the equation. So the fact that you're, you're saying that as well is, is, is so cool to hear and, and how appreciative you must be. Super appreciative. And, and it just felt like such an honor to go back and do it the way I might have wanted to do it the first time. Because I think what people forget is like, 
I was literally 15 years old when we recorded Brotherhood, right? And as, <laughs> we're, as, as, as we're trying to figure out like marketing decisions and band decisions, like it's incomprehensible to me that a bunch of people all under 20 got in a van and drove thousands of miles without cell phones, without GPS. Like it was interesting. I, I ended up not finishing high school because of music and I ended up going back to go to college and, and I, I, I ended up actually going to Wharton uh, in my adult life during COVID. But I remember like trying to explain to high school, right? Like going in and I hadn't been there in a week and the principal or, you know, the Dean of students would be like, where were you? And I'd be like, I was on tour. And they're like, what do you mean you were on tour? <laughs> and I was like, well, I played New York. I played Philadelphia. I played Virginia beach. We hit Harrisburg and Philadelphia on the <laughs> way home. And that's where I've been. And they're like, yeah, right. Kid. Sure. Yeah, I mean, who, especially at that age, I mean, it, it, it's absolutely crazy to think, too, that, you know, from DYS, you went and were a founding member of Slapshot. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. The main difference, I would say, in terms of my roles in Slapshot and DYS is, so DYS was very much like it was Dave Smalley's band and my band. And, you know, there was a, an incredible amount of talent that we were lucky enough to get to play with us, but it was ultimately our vision, and we were the core people that existed from day one until today. And we called all the shots and made most of the decisions, good and bad. And then Slapshot, I was the last of the four founding members. And it sort of, I joined in as like a fully formed vision that was very much Jack Kelly chokes vision. And at that moment in my life where I had gone back to college, you know, and I, I, I sort of started part-time and then, and then full-time where I didn't have to do anything but show up and play. Right. And then ultimately, Jack made all the musical calls. Jack made all the business calls. Jack made all the image calls was like a, a really interesting relief. And, and I'll sort of bring that forward to current day, right, where I, I went back and played their 35th reunion shows at the Rat. Jack and the current band were kind enough to have the original lineup back to close out the shows every night. And I was like. I have to learn four songs. I'm going to show up in Boston for two rehearsals. This incredible band's going to play like 40 minutes, and then I'm going to come out for the last 15. It's like the easiest gig of my life. And again, it was like a super honor where we're like, we're trying to ramp up DYS. I'm making calls about room sizes and venues and uh, booking flights and what should we play and what should the poster look like and do we want to drop a single before <laughs> that. And, and it was a super fun thing about showing up in somebody else's vision and just trying to fill a role as opposed to have to carry it. And you don't have to worry about being the manager and the t-shirt guy and everything else. You're just there to, to do your role. You don't have to worry about being the manager or the t-shirt guy. And again, I want to give Jack credit. He's always had a fully formed vision for that band. And I, I and I respect it in terms of all the iterations the Slapshot's been through. They're bigger now than they've ever been before. They've never played bigger venues. I know. They've never played more shows. <laughs> it, you know, so like this idea of taking a pure vision and try to carry it forward as true as possible is like a success path in, in nearly anything. And, and so they were incredibly different roles, incredibly different roles. Yeah, and I wanted to bring up Slapshot because, look, this recording, and we're going to get into this song here in a minute, Wolfpack, uh, a minute and 17 seconds. It's pretty raw. It's pretty primitive. Uh, it was recorded uh, crudely, I'm sure. And we're going to we're gonna talk about that in a second. And if you just listen to it, it could be just misconstrued as possibly noise to somebody. But you pull back the covers on this song. Look at the people around it. I mean, you got you and Dave. You worked on the record with Lou Giordano. I mean, look what Lou's done in his career. Um, your sound guy at the time was Mud 
Todd Rock, who went on to produce records from Godsmack and, and, and Avenged Sevenfold. Uh, the list goes on and on here. Dave went on to play with Dag Nasty All, Down by Law. So uh, the, the, the talent here is not lost on me. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's so funny, right? Because as we're sort of talking about a deconstructing a song, one of the things for better or for worse, and I, I know I get some hate for this, you know, with sort of like the old school and the core, but like when we put the band back together, I had this view of like, you know, we made that first demo tape of Wolfpack and then we made Brotherhood, which is a little bit more progressed. And then we made our second metal record. And then we came back and we did a bunch of other stuff. And we first reformed the band. I was like, how can I make the early stuff and the later stuff come together. And how does that fit through my vision today? And I, I admit, I've done a fair amount of plastic surgery on that song, right? So like the wolf pack that we play today isn't like a minute 17 seconds. It's like two minutes, 40 seconds, right? And if you sort of talk about like the crudeness of like, I think that song is like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, out, right? Like yes. now it's like verse, <laughs> chorus, verse, chorus, breakdown, chorus, chorus, out. Oh, it's like a song and it's become, you know, we played together. It's become like a set closer now. And so we changed this arrangement to sort of be like a set closer, right? Everybody knows it. Then we take it down. It's bass and drums and Dave does a rap, right? And then we bring it up and then it's like chorus, chorus out. We're up an octave. Stuff we never would have thought of back then because we were kids. Yeah. Well, and I, I wanted to say, you know, you threw this stuff down, uh, I'm sure, pretty quickly. Do you recall what it was recorded to? Was it two-inch tape or... Eight track tape. So here's where my memory is going to be good and my memory is going to be bad. It was absolutely an eight track studio. Uh, my memory is not good enough and I'm not enough of an old school gear guy to recall if eight tracks is two inch tape or eight tracks is one inch tape, right? I can't remember. But it was whatever the default for eight track would have been at the time, right? Because I remember even like when we did the second record, we were on like 24 track and it was like a real board, right? And it was like, even then it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then when we did our last stuff, it was like straight into Pro Tools. I think we might have used the old uh, Rick Rubin trip of like dumping the drums on a tape before we dropped it into Pro Tools, like in essence, tape as an effect. But at any rate, so it was Radio Beat Studio, frankly because it's the only studio we knew that would do hardcore bands. And I, I think everybody knew it because for whatever reason, they had a relationship with Modern Method or not. Most of Boston, not LA was recorded at Radio Beat. So then it was like, you know, we don't know anything. There's no internet. You can't Google like studios in Boston. So it's like, what's the studio that we know? Oh, you know, Radio Beat, right? Gang Green recorded Boston, not LA there. Oh, you know, like SSD recorded. Kids will have their say there. And to your point about Lou Giordano, luck. Lou Giordano works for Jimmy Dufour, who, you know, who owns the studio. We didn't audition a bunch of engineers. We wouldn't have been qualified to audition a bunch of engineers. Well, yeah, I was going to say, was he, was he the in-house guy there? Lou Giordano is the in-house engineer. And it's also interesting because I, I don't want to do this in any way to do a disservice to Lou, but he was always also looking back more of a sound man than a producer, right? I remember a lot of effort on, like, how it sounds, right? Mic placement. I don't remember a lot of conversation about, like, production and, and i contrast that a little like when we made the second record which is like we brought in you know basically the rhythm section from like a new wave dance band like let your head explode over that one right and i remember like <laughs> doing pre-pro and the producers having thoughts about arrangements right like I don't recall Jimmy and Lou having a lot of thoughts about arrangements, right? But when we, when we get a little bit more sophisticated, we have, you know, and, and it's in that latter era where Mudrock was actually not involved in Wolfpack at all. 
Mudrock was our live sound guy around the era of the second record. He wasn't sort of, I mean, A, we can't afford the extra plus up of like a sound guy when we're like brother and <laughs> era. We're taking whoever the club has, right? You know, DYS second record, we can afford the augmentation of whatever, you know, Mudrock's day rate was at that point. And we ended up reconnecting with him, you know, when DYS became LA based. And to, at that point, when you sort of said, you know, he's done Avenged Sevenfold, he's done Godsmack, you know, you walk into his studio, there's platinum records lining the walls. You know, I'm probably going to embarrass him a little. I remember the height of, you know, Godsmack was like the last of the vinyl era. I remember visiting Mudrock when he was making an incredible amount of money off his points on the Godsmack records. And he's in kind of like this punk rock, rock and roll, heavy metal version of the Playboy Mansion in a very OG neighborhood in L.A. called, uh, and this is late 90s, this is way before we worked with him, in like this neighborhood called Hancock Park, which is like this old money neighborhood. And there's a whole bunch of rock and roll guys living there. And there's like a grotto in the backyard. And there's tattooed girls and strippers. And like that was mud rock in like the, the height of the Godsmack era. Interesting. Well, I got to ask you, okay, you know, this song to me is a time capsule. And when you got the band back together, 2009 or whenever you guys got back together, was there any attention paid to, you know what, we have to play this and, and make it sound like it did then? Or I know you, you lengthened the song, but like, did you try to be tighter as a band? Did you try to, or did you, did you want it to, to keep the integrity of, of the original recording? Much to the pushback I've heard in many ways, shapes, or form, I don't believe that things should live in amber. I believe that that things should always carry a current context. And again, if you think about like people told me then and people tell me today, DYS should just go play Brotherhood. You'd be much bigger than you are now. People would love it. I not interesting to me. There, there's two kinds of bands who reunite. There's bands who just go play, you know, they're like, a novelty act. And I don't mean that in a bad way, right? They're going to play like the moment you remember. And believe me, a lot of those bands draw bigger crowds than we could ever draw, right? And then there's bands who say we're going to grow and we're going to change and we're going to keep making records. And if you go back and I want to name names, if you take the big group of legacy bands, there's bands that continue to make music and there's bands that like never make music and just play what they did, right? Like Agnostic Front, put out a new record every year or two. Madball, put out a record every year or two. Band Y or Z, not putting out any records. And they want to sort of, and there's, a, and there's an audience for that person who wants exactly what they want. A challenge I had is I've got a first record that sounds like this and a second record that sounds like that, and I have to put them together. Yeah. Right? And this is before we even thought. So it, it, when, I don't, it's not necessarily common knowledge. When we first reunited, it was supposed to be one and done. And it was simply decided because there was no HD cameras back then. And we have no ephemera of like an HD shoot of DYS. So the primary decision maker to reform was, I want a six camera. Oh, you're offering a six camera HD shoot of, it, of DYS? I'll take that. <laughs> and then it was like, celebrate the moment. We had zero plans of doing a single other show, right? And then when we do it together, I was like, I'm not just going to do it. Like, believe me, I've got very, I've got people with a lot of credibility in the world of punk rock record labels and A&R who are like, just go play Brotherhood, like give the people what they want. And I was like, no. I was like, I believe in the music on that second record. So it was like how to put it together. So the, it was basically like this. We played D sharp. So Dave could hit the high notes in the second record. We played E on the first record. We're playing everything in E. We're bringing Dave's vocals down. So he's, he's singing the same octaves and everything. We're slowing down the first record. We're speeding up the second record. Now they're a little bit more cohesive. 
now let's not now let's not go crazy and change things, but now let's think about you know they always say like the best plastic surgery you can't tell it like. Uh, the songs we changed the most were, were Wolfpack and Brotherhood. And it was like, first course, first course, done. Like, why did we do that? We didn't do that because it was a creative decision. We did it because we didn't know anything, right? So again, Brotherhood is like verse course, verse course, breakdown, course, course, out. Wolfpack is like verse course, verse course, breakdown, out, out. It just has more drama. It's better live. You can do things. And so we tried, we, we tried to do things like that. And so what I was trying to do is like not cast it in amber, but put on the best show I could put on for 2009. And when you talk about being tight, I think I flew to Boston. The band was was Boston-based at the time. I think I flew to Boston nine times over the course of like six months to rehearse for that show. And I took that thing very, very seriously. Like, I I, I don't know if if you've seen any of the footage. That back line, that was our back line, right? Like, now it's like it's the Ramones back line. We're playing – Six Marshall heads, six Marshall cabs, two SVTs. I haven't been on a stage in 20 years. There's two brothers who live in Boston, twins, who have been roadies for Alice Cooper and, you know, like bands of that level. I was like, guys, I need you. Like, I haven't done this in 20 years. You know, it was like, it it was really like, I I thought it was going to be one and done. I want to do it to the absolute pinnacle of my ability. People can challenge those creative choices, but nobody can challenge that we achieved pulling them off at the highest level possible. You could have asked that we made different ones, but I think trying to deliver what we tried to deliver. To that point, we ended up playing together because Dickie Barrett introduced us. And after that show, Dickie was like, I can't believe you guys were that good. Will you come open for us at the throwdown, right? And that's when we got to play together. But that's again, when we go from like an 1,100-person venue and like a 2,500-person venue based on the output of that performance. I love everything you you explain. I think the, exactly what you're talking about. Hey, we had to slow down the first records to be at the second. We wanted to make everything congruent, but there's no way we could go back to being 18 years old. And anyone that fools themselves and thinks that they can do that, they just can't. So I think you, uh, you took the best possible direction. I want to jump into this thing. It's a minute and 17 seconds of a snapshot of 1983. This is Wolfpack. Uh, The intro, uh, it's a short Tom drum fill followed by four bars of drums by themselves. On bar five, a menacing sounding bass, courtesy of our friend Jonathan here. Uh, Bass guitar comes in. Bars 13 through 16, a lone guitar joins us, panned hard right. And then we get right into verse one. the streets 30 or 40 strong united against a world that's wrong the numbers shock you it's the truth a mini army of angry youth yes <laughs> dave smalley lyrics 100 percent. and i think we were really just trying to speak to like the power of our scene like if you can encapsulate what either boston was at that moment or Boston felt like at that moment, like that's what we were trying to sort of describe. You know, I think you can feel a little bit of like 
English oi in there, this idea of like, you know, a boot boy army, though we were, you know, we had very different political values that, than that group. But this idea of like, again, I go back to how I described New York. We were at war with jocks, right? We were at war with our parents. We were even at war with like the punk rock scene, right? Like the punk rock scene in Boston at that time was drug driven and party driven. And it also wasn't DIY. Like the, the point then, like if you were like, the outlets or the neighborhoods, it was like, we're going to play and an A&R guy is going to watch us and somebody's going to pay us to make a record and somebody's going to pay to put us on tour and we're not going to leave Boston until we do that. And so they never left Boston, right? And so in addition to sort of like the drugs, no drugs schism, over time there was jealousy, right? Like these bands would be like, you guys just toured America? How did you do that? We did that. How did you book it? We made phone calls. How'd you make a record with the proceeds from our jobs? How did you buy Marshall stacks with the proceeds from our jobs? Like, or you couldn't play the rat where they were going to pay you $300 anyway. So we'd book a VFW hall where you could make a thousand dollars, right? Or $2,000. Yeah. Just doing it yourself. And so we were sort of, you know, I think the lyrics there were sort of how we felt at war with everybody then. Yeah. And I'm sure there was, there was some places, what was the drinking age in Boston then? Was it 18 or 21? Some point during that era, either right before or right after it changed from 18 to 21, because I know some people who had come to Boston to attend college maybe a couple of years earlier. Because like at the time that I'm 14 or 15, maybe John Sox is like 20 from the FUs, right? You know, there were a couple guys. God, he was old, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's funny. <laughs> or like Steve Grimes. Like, I don't know. Steve Grimes might have been done with college when I was in high school, right? So there are a couple of guys who are like – Jack Kelly had moved up from from Provincetown to attend Emerson College, right? You know, but like Dave was a college freshman when I met him. You know, he just moved up from D.C. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I do recall that it changed because there were, I remember a few people in the scene were able to get into clubs, right, without a fake ID. But also, <laughs> fake IDs were much easier then. Like, I, I laugh now as an adult. Like, I have snuck into very exclusive private parties in Los Angeles using the exact same tactics I used to use in uh, in punk rock. <laughs> it's just gotten more sophisticated. Like, we used to have, like, we used to have every colored magic marker in the back of somebody's car or in your bag. And somebody would walk out and they'd say, the stamp is red today. And so you'd, like, draw some red and then you'd smudge it like you were sweaty. And then you just go in and go like that and hold up your fist and you'd get in. And it's funny, I probably shouldn't admit this. I got a COVID vaccine on the first possible day you sh you could get a COVID vaccine in Los Angeles on a day. Only medical professionals were supposed to get COVID vaccines, basically taking that ethos forward. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. I love that you are crashing uh, uh, L.A. Uh, socialite type parties. That's hilarious. I, I, I got into the Playboy Mansion four ways, like basically hacking it like the way we used to back in the day. <laughs> Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. We got lots more with Jonathan Anastas coming right up after a few words from our sponsors. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. 
Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. And now, back to the show. Getting back to verse one here, you know, something that Dave did here, Dave Smalley, in this song, Jonathan, it's kind of carried over. It was kind of became his thing, okay? The main lead vocal is centered here. Then panned off left, there's a unison vocal, maybe two. And then there's another vocal of Dave that's an octave higher from the main lead vocal. Some of the notes are also forming harmonies with certain words. A style Dave, again, uh, would continue kind of throughout his career. Was that talked about? And the feeling I get from the vocals here, it, 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 they're very loose, but it sounds like you're at the hardcore show and there's a bunch of kids around the mic. Was that the vibe? So I would say this. I don't have a strong recollection of that. Dave came to DYS version 1.0 with absolutely the highest level of like musical sophistication and understanding of the four of us. Dave Collins was an incredible drummer. And Dave Collins, I believe, took real drum lessons, right? But I was self-taught. Andy Strahan was self-taught. And I think Andy was just teaching himself guitar at the time that like Alboril was like, hey, you should join DYS. They need a guitar player. But Dave had sort of come at this with like singing in choirs, you know, performing in musicals in high school. Like Dave absolutely at that era carried 90% of, you know, the musical theory understanding in the band. And I'm sure he and Lou had a conversation about that. And I'm absolutely sure at that moment in our career, I was incapable of providing any kind of valuable input into that. So I'm sure at that point in our career, if Dave was like, this is what I hear in my head, can we try it? run with it, right? Because I don't need, I probably don't even understand what you're talking about. And if I did, I have nothing to add to it. So, so the story I'd like to paint in my head is like Dave and Lou are having a reasonably sophisticated conversation around that. But to your point, sort of a contradictory sophistication layered on top of like, can we get through this take without fucking up? <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I hear. Uh, right off of verse one, we're into chorus one. No time here for uh, a pre-chorus or anything. Straight into chorus one. Wolfpack, don't give us any shit. Wolfpack, or you're gonna get hit. Wolfpack, it's a unity ideal. Wolfpack, better believe it's real. And, you know, hearing words like that when I was 15 years old in, in you know, Southwest Florida, growing up with, basically, I just had the, the radio until my friend uh, introduced me to punk rock. And I would hear lyrics from straight edge bands like this, you know, Wolfpack, don't give us any shit, Wolfpack, or you're going to get hit. And I would see these pits at these shows and, and they scared me. That's kind of why I asked about, you know, the scene. I do think some of it was blown uh, maybe out of proportion, but to this 15 15-year-old kid, it's like, these guys mean business. We tried to mean business. I mean, it's interesting. Jack Kelly is, is famously credited with this quote, and I love it, and it's uniquely him, but it's true. My job isn't to go back and correct misperceptions and, and mythology. My job is to amplify it. 
<laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I, I, I think some of these guys, like Al, like, I, you know, what the, the two secret pillars of Boston crew hardcore was we all listened to rock and roll and heavy metal all the way through. So it's, in addition to punk rock, so it should have surprised nobody where the bands went because it was like as soon as we were good enough. Like, I've told this story on podcasts before, so I'll say it very quickly. I probably sat down first and tried to play Season of Wither by Aerosmith. It was impossible for me to decipher. I pick up a Ramones record, I get it, right? Yeah, right. And so that that natural mythology. But the second piece is we all were huge professional wrestling fans. You know, the WWE is like a new – it started as a New England promotion. And I think the best of what Boston Hardcore brought is this kind of like WWE-style, like bravado, mythology, scripting into being sort of like larger than – trying to be larger-than-life characters, and it's reflected in that, right? We're, 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 we're cutting WWE promos there. You know, there's a, there's a famous <laughs> Boston radio promo – where, where Al and Jack are on this promo and they might as well be two heels in the WWE getting interviewed by Vince McMahon, right? They're just swinging big, like, you know, taking out sacred cows, saying, you know, saying wild stuff. And I, and, you know, we certainly believed it, but it's like, we, we, I think in some weird way we're natural marketers. <laughs> well, uh, verse two. All right. There, there's, there's some good stuff in here. It's real fucking proud to be a part of this. Fucking proud to be a part of this. Every kid, every kid's my brother here. Shoulder to shoulder or back to back. We're united. It's the year of the pack. The second line, Jonathan, to be a part of this, this line is super loose. It's kind of all over the place. The second vocal comes in super late. Was there any talk of redoing that at the time? Like this is, that's the one standout part of this song. It's really loose or was it like, no, we were, that's how we sound. That's how it went down. It's a documentation. Move on. Oh, I think it was probably budget, right? I mean, it was, it, it was, it was one of two things. I, I think even then you're giving us too much credit. It was probably one of two things. Nobody caught it or <laughs> we only have so much money. If we stop and go back, we won't get the other four songs in the can. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I feel that urgency. Our first record, I sang like 19 songs in like, you know, 12 hours or whatever. It was just like, all right, we're pressing record. Go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so funny how different it became and, and how faster things became with Pro Tools, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, could, you could just get so much done in a day. But but I am sure there was no conversation like that. You know, there was no Rick Rubin-esque conversation about the purity of the moment. Gotcha, gotcha. Chorus two. Fuck! Wolf Rock! Don't give us any shit! Wolf Rock! It's the same lyric as chorus one. I'm going to read them again. Wolfpack, don't give us any shit. Wolfpack, or you're going to get hit. Wolfpack, it's a unity ideal. Wolfpack, better believe it's real. And then the outro, uh, it's it's the intro riff uh, for four bars ending loosely on bar five. And that's the song. A minute and 17 seconds. Ending loosely is probably, you know, should be the tagline for the record. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the b-side reissue uh, again i uh, congratulations you're uh hearing you talk about this is is so refreshing uh a couple things i want to thank you for blazing the trail 
Uh, I tell this to all the guys that got 10 years on me. By the time we came around in 92, uh, 93, and we were we were starting to do this, uh, you guys already kind of told the world what places not to play. You know, maybe don't go here. This guy's going to, this promoter's going to screw you, etc. And uh, really helped bands like us. When we came around, we, we kind of had a blueprint. So thank you for that. And thanks for your for your attitude of, of just the, the, being appreciative of the fact that you get to go to Europe now on this little band you formed 40 years ago and do things you never could have done then. That is awesome. I appreciate that, but I want to say something about what you just said, which is like the funny thing about doing it this long. I want to reference what you just said about, you know, getting the chance to go back and do it again, because you, you talked about how we might have been trailblazers for you. But having done this so long, I really have to say what sort of happened with 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever point oh you want to sort of say you were part of, it was an honor and a learning experience for us to blueprint what you did when we came back and did it again. Because if I went back to my original blueprint, I'm still in 100-person venues. I'm still in 500-person venues. I'm still recording on eight tracks. I had to go back in as somebody who had been out of music for 20 years, right? Like I, I remained a fan and sort of say like, what's the blueprint for today? What's possible from a live perspective? What's possible from a recorded perspective? What a sonics sound like in this genre? Like what a performances sound like? And sharing stages with bands like you and yours and watching you perform and hearing your recorded output was a relearning experience and became input back into where I was. So if, if you sort of say like, where's my musical brain today? It's everything that I've taken in. Like, I, I have to say, like, all of that became a re-accelerant. And, you know, in our later post-reunion output, that's as much influenced by you as you would say you were by us. Huh. Well, that's a, a, a very high compliment. And I, I understand what you're saying. You know, there was a, a lot of us that were going out there and, and uh, you know, flying that flag for, for punk rock and, and, and doing that. And uh, you, you got to come back and look uh, through fresh lenses, kind of, you know, you, you weren't basing it off that first blueprint because you couldn't anymore. What they talk about, right, if you're a skier or my son's, you know, playing tennis now is like, and even about DYS, right? So, so you can only know it's possible. There's, there's a famous story, which is like, I, I, I'm a big workout guy. Nobody had ever snatched, you know, an Olympic weightlift 400 pounds in the history of the world, right? It hadn't been broken. There was a rumor that somebody did it in training. After that rumor circulated, five people did it in real life, right? <laughs> you have to know what's possible to make it possible, right? So when we did it the first time around, what's possible? Going to New York is possible. Flying to California is possible. Making a record on 8-track is possible. Making a record on 16-track is possible. Selling 5,000 units is possible. Selling 10,000 units is highly unlikely. When I came back the second time, you could see playing in front of 90,000 people is possible. You know, getting a million streams is possible. Getting 10 million streams is possible. I'm inspired, you know, following Brian Baker and like his, his quest from like Norlin era, Les Pauls to like, <laughs> Oh, it's all juniors and P nineties now. And the, <laughs> and the Sonics. And, you know, now I finally given up on taking my GCM 800s on tour. It's all in my Kemper, right? You know, yeah, like, yeah. I follow that stuff. I try to learn from that stuff. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I follow Brian too. It's his, his stuff, his stuff's amazing. Um, 
look, Jonathan, I, I want to thank you for taking the time. You're sitting in an airport. I was just there two weeks ago, LAX. I don't envy you, but I hope you have a great flight. And just want to thank you for, for taking us uh, on a little straight edge history of Boston and, and talking about Wolfpack with us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for caring. Thank you for listening. And for sure, hit me up next time you're in LA and we'll, we'll, we'll go out and have some fun. I, I will. And la- lastly, real quick, anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? What you, you got coming up with DOIS? What's happening? So unfortunately, I think it's pretty common knowledge now. Everyone may not have heard. Dave Smalley's been quite ill. Yes, I'm sorry to hear that. He's on the mend. That sort of unfortunately made us postpone the shows we had around you know, celebrating this anniversary re-release. As soon as Dave is healthy enough to perform again. We're going to go out in the world and try to share this. You, you know, I, I, you think in a perfect world as a marketer, as a musician, I want the record release and the shows to fall on top of each other. I want it to be like a clean marketing beat. That's not going to be possible. But we want to get out there as soon as Dave is well enough and celebrate this with the people who have celebrated us for this long. And also for those of you who missed out on pre-ordering the re-release on Bridge Nine, sold out. Again, thank you for everybody. We'll be back with news from Bridge Nine and Chris Wren very quickly, potentially even by the time this podcast is out, on what Pressing 2 looks like. And, you know, if it's a new color and you're interested in that and you already have another one, you can get one or if you missed out on the new one. But we we really like the package Chris and Bridge Nine put together for this record. I think it really honors the record in a way that some of the unofficial re-releases haven't done so from an attention to detail or sort of adding some newness perspective. And, you know, Chris and Bridge Nine have been a partner to DYS since our reformation. It started with a merchandise deal when we did that first show thinking it was going to be one and done, turned into a live record deal, turned into a new release deal, turned into this re-release deal. I cannot talk about a record label that cares more about the scene, cares about attention to detail, gets it right, is straight up with bands, like it really like that, that ethos of what you hoped DIY labels would be. Chris and Bridge Nine are that, and I can't speak more highly of them as partners. And, and also what I love about Chris is he lives in the present with this great reverence for the past at the same time, because also, as we've talked about, I think if you just get stuck in the past, you're not advancing the mission. Yeah. Right. And, and so Chris, in, in a way, like even look at this package, right? It advances the mission and honors the past. And that's what we try to do as a band. And that's what Chris does as a label. And uh, again, I just want to be, say thank you to Chris and the label for that partnership. And that's what we're just going to keep trying to do, honor the past and push it forward. I love it. And do me a favor, please tell, tell Dave, I send my regards. Thank you. I will. Hey everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jonathan Anastas, but don't go anywhere. We got lots more like the band you might not know in the rap segment coming right up after a few words from our sponsors. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like chocolates. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. As we near the end of the show. 
Here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, email your best song and a short bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is the Young Rochelles, a pop-punk trio from Long Beach, New York, featuring Ricky Rochelle on vocals and drums, Rocky Rochelle on guitar and backing vocals, and Rookie Rochelle on the bass. They have two full-length albums and a solid back catalog of EPs. Here's a snippet of their song, Fractured Fairy Tale. Oh no, you're saying he's the bad guy. Chris and Chris. Chris, this is one of those wild ones where our guest had to go back like 40 years to when he was a kid and have the recollections of that time. It's awesome. I love when we have the trailblazers on the podcast. I know. And there was other things that I wanted to get into it with Jonathan. It just, you know, you just don't have enough time. We're trying to just talk about the song here, but there's just so many interesting things. I mean, how many kids recorded a demo tape with their buddy in a hardcore band that just didn't have this type of legacy? And was that because they were in Boston? I mean, look at the people that we mentioned that, and what they went on to do that were part of this scene. It wasn't like these were just, you know, uh, at the time they they didn't know what they were doing, fly by the seat of your pants, but uh, it, it's had a lasting impression for 40 years. I loved how he talked about how everything was a battle, including your band. And he used like the Bruins and the Celtics as like Boston examples. Of course, you're talking about the time of the Celtics versus the Lakers. Everything was like a battle. And that's pretty inspiring when you're writing music. I talk about that with my friends. I mean, have you ever written a song when you were like, I, this is a dumb question. I was going to say when you're pissed off. Of course, you've written songs when you're pissed off, but like almost as a way to avoid actually fighting and to channel those feelings into something else? Yeah, maybe not to the point of fighting, but okay. def, def, definitely <laughs> channeled uh, ill feelings. I didn't want to go somewhere else, uh, certainly. Sure. Um, yeah, all, all the uh, the examples he was giving about the rivalries, and, and think about it. The, he was 15 when he did this, 16 years old. Like Half of them couldn't even get into bars, if it, even if it was 18 <laughs> to get in bars then. I love the story he told about how there were two clubs one that was like the straight edge venue and one that was like the venue that was the complete opposite of straight edge and that visual that he put in my head of like some people chose to go to this club some people chose to go to this one and most of the people that went to the club i went to the straight edge club they're still around and a lot of those people that went to that other one talk about a literal fork in the road you know i that really struck me yeah well and there's something to be said if you know they were talking a lot of the lyrics wasn't just about not ingesting substances into your body it was about you know standing up for yourself being autonomous taking responsibility for your actions uh being a good being a a good human and uh, uh it's really interesting though again I, I asked him you know were you guys basing this model off of dc like where did straight edge where did this whole thing and i don't really even know if jonathan knows it's just something that happened and, and, and here we are 
I love the quote. I don't know who he... He was referencing some people that I wasn't familiar with, but I love the quote that was more or less about how there are some people out there who embrace the mythology. Now, this mythology being like you were talking about, being a kid in Florida and hearing about all oh, these straight-edge shows, it's crazy, and like it scared you, he <laughs> said. There's people that embrace that mythology, and then there's some people that are like, you know, Jonathan is like realistic about it. He's like, well, maybe some of that stuff got a little bit exaggerated, <laughs> but uh, I think it's all fun. I think I would, I would embrace the mythology of that, wouldn't you? Absolutely. I, I think something else I took took from this episode, Chris, was just, uh, you know, as primitive as the vocals are here from Dave Smalley, you you can still tell it's him, and and he's got this delivery that he carried with uh, throughout his career. How he would double his vocal in different things. I thought that was really really neat. And the other thing I, I have to bring up, I I couldn't believe, nor was I fishing for a compliment, but I couldn't believe at the end when he was talking. About about how, well, thanks to Less Than Jake and all the bands in the 90s that, that were out there, uh, had we not been going into the punk rock clubs and, and uh, continuing this thing that bands like DYS started, maybe he wouldn't have had a chance to come back. I thought that was very humble and very cool. Yeah, and from the outsider perspective of not being in either person's shoes there, I see that. I mean, it's like mutual respect, obviously. I love that. That was great. I also really loved how... And, you know, you and I both have experienced this. <laughs> he talked about the budget being a big part of the early recordings, meaning there's no money for second guessing. <laughs> what you got is what you got. <laughs> like, it's not like, yeah. oh, was this a decision? Was this an artistic decision we made? No, there just wasn't money for more studio time. So what you got was what you got. And that's as honest as it gets. I, I loved that answer. There was a part of me, the outside, outside chance where he's going to be like, yeah, we knew it was Rush, but you know, we just we figured whatever, it's punk rock and and that wasn't what he said at all. I was like, "No, dude, we just recorded it and what what went down what is what went down." Uh that's what I love about it though. It's a snapshot from the winter or summer of 83, whenever they put this together 41 years ago. And it's like a relic from 40 years ago that, that's been dug up. You can listen to it now with these kind of ears. And that's why I kept saying to Jonathan, you know, do you try to go back and, and play, uh, you know, be really rough around the edges and be who you were at 15? Or do you play it like now? And I, I thought his answer was was very, uh, very sound in, in saying that you, you got to do a little bit of both. Yeah, I think I would side with what he said, too. It'd be hard hard to not play to your abilities now. You can't go back and play like when you were 15 years old. And uh, I love what he said. You have to know what's possible to make it possible, right? And he used the example of weightlifters. I've heard that example about times in races. Like, no one could beat this. Was it the four-minute mile? I think that's what it was. Like, no one ever did it, and then someone did it, and then everybody did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think that that's, like, an inspiring thing. He didn't know, as a kid playing in a punk rock band in Boston, what was possible, the, the legacy that could come, and the huge shows you could play, and the amount of fans that you could have. He was just playing shows and, and doing his thing, and... uh Look at all that happened. Yeah, man. And just it's refreshing at how grateful he is for it all. Very, very cool. Hey, we got a Chris DeMakes a podcast Instagram page now. And my friend Chris here is putting tons of cool content. Maybe you can see Jonathan and I talking on there. Uh, I'll put point. a Jonathan clip up there. There we go. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it's uh, been doing well. You, I love the clips there. You know, people have been asking for a long time saying, hey, you know, why isn't this thing video? And my man here is so meticulous with the editing. You can't really edit 
the audio, the video, but we're putting the snippets out there. Thanks for uh, all the support with that. Uh, please give us uh, a follow over at YouTube as well. Go check us out and subscribe over there at Krista Makes Official. Tons of great content. And give my friend Chris a follow too on Instagram at Chris Fafalius. I'm not even going to plug myself today, Chris. It's all about Less you. Less than Chris D. Ah! Give him a follow. Yeah, you did it. <laughs> and thanks to each and everyone out there for tuning in once again. You guys, you, you, you make this so worthwhile. If it wasn't for you, we, we definitely wouldn't be doing this. So thank you very much. I want to thank this week's guest, Jonathan Anastas, for sitting with us. And we'll see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, this is Scott from Fly on the Call. Each week, I speak to a different musician, whether they're in an established band like Silverstein or The Wonder Years, or a band on the rise like Spanish Love Songs, Origami Angel, or Meet Me at the Altar. We discuss music and lyrics, the successes and challenges of being in a band, and more as we get to the core of each artist. The show features musicians of diverse genres and backgrounds, so there's always a chance I'll be talking to your new favorite band. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.